Alright, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Rumcast. This is the podcast where we talk all things rum with the people who love and shape it. I'm Will Hookinga, and as always, joining me, looking fresh-faced and well-traveled <laughs> after going across Europe, is my co-host down in Miami, John Gullah. John, I haven't heard much about your trip but I know it was a big one. I know you saw a lot. I'm assuming that you drank, I won't say a lot, but a, a responsible amount. I know you were traveling with your family out there. Yeah. This wasn't this wasn't a big, you know, booze fest or anything. But tell me, what was it like? Tell us about your trip. It was fantastic. We just got back a couple of days ago. And like you said, I haven't had a chance to talk much to anybody yet uh, about it. But uh, the first and foremost thing I think is it was a family trip. So as you mentioned there, not a whole lot of booze-related drinking going on. However... <laughs> booze-related drinking? Yeah, booze-related <laughs> okay, drinking. Okay, so, so there was water-related drinking. There, there was, was tons of water-related soda related yes. drinking. Very much soda. Coffee. Yes. And wine. And wine. Uh, which, okay, there yes, you go. Yes, yes. Uh, like does wine qualify as wine. booze? Is booze just liquor? I think, I think booze is all alcohol. We need a definition of booze. I don't really know exactly what booze is and isn't. Wait, for, um, but, first of all, first of all, where where did you go? Because I said Europe, but I didn't specify yeah. what you what you saw. Where what countries were you in? It it was the trip of a lifetime. So we had set this up just to give a little context. Back in March of 2020, we planned for this, and of course, COVID Great time hit. To plan a we trip. couldn't go. Yeah. Uh, so two years later, uh, we were finally able to make it happen. And so we we put together over the years, literally planning this trip, the way we could best experience a lot of different places in Europe. So we started at Paris, and then we spent four days in Paris. We then took a flight over to Napoli, to Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did Pompeii just quickly over one night. It was a real quick stopover, and then took the fast train over to Rome, did four days in Rome, and then finished taking the fast train up to Florence and did Florence. Nice. It was a really, really great trip. It was really more centered on any like art and art history mm-hmm. and architecture. You know, we visited the Louvre, which is fantastic. The Vatican Museum's in Rome. Uh, as I mentioned, Pompeii, Florence, the Dome. Uh, so uh, the Uffizi Gallery there in Florence. So really uh, less about, unfortunately, in some ways, less about uh, experiencing rum in every place and more about experiencing that. But You were, you were stuck just looking at the most amazing <laughs> art and architecture Darn. and taking in the history. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. rough. We had our, you know, our 13 and 14 year old girls with us, so uh-huh. uh, made it a little bit more difficult to get some of that done that I would have liked to have experienced in Paris. Richard Nicholson from New Zealand Society was nice enough to give me a list as long as my arm of places oh, nice. to go to in Paris. And Shout out I'm to going Richard. To t- yes, I'm going to tell him. Sadly, I was not able to visit even one of those. <laughs> we were just moving so fast. We had so much planned and packed into the trip that you know my 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 legs and my feet were on fire by the end of the day, and we just didn't get to do much. But what I was going to say is, I did you know here and there I would see a liquor shop or I would see something that would catch my interest, mm-hmm. and I would walk in. And so he- here's my confession. Uh, that I wanted to say. I I confess, this is my first time in Europe, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned. So I confess that I had this idea in my head going in that I would walk into any place in Paris, (laughs) 
or in Italy, and it would be this rum oasis. Rum heaven. Uh, yes, yeah. rum heaven. There would be things I've never seen before, and you know, all like the amazing... independent bottlings. Yeah, like I don't know why, but in my head, that's what I'm thinking. I just walk into any corner shop, and I would see amazing things. Right. <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> Similar to maybe here in Miami and some other U.S. experiences I've had uh, in different cities. You know, those stores they carried Bacardi. Mm-hmm. They carried a lot of Havana Club, quite a bit of Havana Club. Okay, well, uh, that's Cuban something rum. something Which that is, uh, us yeah. here in the U.S., we, we can't readily yeah. get. Yeah, and, you know, maybe one or two other things that I was familiar with, but really nothing other than that. And, and so it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't what I expected. Right, uh, you, you, weren't, you weren't just greeted by the finest rum selections <laughs> at, at every single corner no. store. Especially in Paris, like I figured, oh, Agricole is going to be, you know, right. I, I, I can't go uh, two steps without finding an Agricole somewhere that's going to like be on a menu or whatever. All the restaurants we went to, the rum list, Bacardi. <laughs> and and I'm is, like, you know, son it, of a bitch. It, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like that is an illustration of how social media can kind of like warp your view of a place because every time we see like a a, you know a a a liquor store shot from europe or something it's it's an amazing selection right it's kind of like no one's going to be walking around posting you know all the average disappointing (laughs) rum selections they're going to post the good stuff and so naturally an american you go over there and you're like the great rum is everywhere all this stuff that i can't get and it's like no you still have to kind of search it out you do, and and I'm sure there are many, many great places, both in Paris and Italy, that you can find these things, and you can go to, of course, La Maison du Whisky. I wasn't able to make it by our hotel, was not quite close enough to get to it, but obviously I know that's one. I know Rum Excellence with an H, uh, R-H-U-M, mm-hmm. as another one in Paris, but like I said, unfortunately, I wasn't in a place where, in this vacation, I was able to do that in a way and get to those kind of markers, so... Like I said, I, my thought was like, well, okay, I know maybe I won't make it to those, but I'll get to some places that'll have something. And I really didn't find anything. I, worth, I think the uh, I think the headline yeah. here is that your trip was so great that you couldn't <laughs> even tear yourself away to go hunt for rum. So that's how you know that you had a great family vacation and experience that yeah. the kids and you and your wife will never forget. Yeah. So yeah. kudos to you on that. It really was, and I'm happy for it and thankful. And next time we go back, it's going to be all about rum. A rum tour. Uh, yes. A rum tour. Yes. Exactly. So what What about you? What have you been doing in these past two weeks that we haven't spoken? I mean, I feel like we speak every few days, but, you know, we, we went two and a half weeks there. We're nothing. So I know. I have to hear what you've been up to. Well, so we had this kind of brilliant idea to launch a Patreon community right yeah. as you were leaving the country for two weeks, which, uh, so, I, you know, not, not to say I, you know, was up to my neck in work because of that or anything, but I've had an amazing time just being able to welcome so many new people to the community, and we've been so grateful for the initial support that we've already received through that. So uh, if you're listening, on our last episode, we announced that we were starting a Patreon community for the Rumcast that gives listeners a way to support the show uh, and also get extra cool stuff. So um, we're launching with doing like some Zoom happy hours and stuff like that just for patrons, early access to episodes. We've also, just before we started recording this, been uh, having a little meeting of the minds of some other mm-hmm. cool new rumcasty things that are going to be coming to patrons in the near future. So everyone keep an eye out for that. But yeah, it's been awesome just like welcoming listeners into the community, getting to know some of them a little bit better. And like I'm already super excited about everything that's going to 
allow us to do. So um, if you are listening and you're interested in checking that out, it's rumcast or patreon.com slash the rumcast. So it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the rumcast, all run one word. There's also a link to it on our website and will be in the show notes of this episode. So check that out if you haven't already. And again, th- just thank you everyone for your support. It's been really, really amazing to see. And I'm super excited for the future of that community. Also on another note, I am wanting to get some ideas from you and also listeners uh, mm-hmm. if you have opinions on this. So I was really fortunate enough, a, a very generous person out there sent me a bo- a big box of rum samples, which is one of the best boxes you can receive in the mail. I don't know about oh, you, yeah. John, but when I know I have rum coming, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning, you know, running out there to, uh, to greet the FedEx or the UPS person and just tear That's into right. the box immediately. What I found awaiting for me in this box was 18 samples. Wow. A sample from every Foursquare exceptional cask selection release. Oh my gosh. So even going back all the way to the original ones, you know, that were like 80 proof, the the original Zen cask and stuff like that, all the the port cask, like all those first. Even the, the 1998 one? Was that the first one? I think so. I'll have to go back and oh double check. What, whatever the first one was, like the first yeah. one is in there. It's it's all wow. the ECS releases. That's incredible. Yeah. So there's a number of ways that I could approach this. I could just go one by one, like year by year chronologically, yeah, chronologically over yeah. the course yeah. over the course of a few different tasting sessions. Mm-hmm. I could also kind of group them according to you know different cask finishes just kind of mix and match Mm. it kind of like Mm -hmm. you know i feel like there may be some logical groupings of different things like maybe i want to have a couple of you know sherry casks together to be able to compare the differences in those maybe i want a couple of port casks together right maybe i want some that are just the vintages to compare you know against each other yeah and then another I won't say a crazy idea, but an interesting idea was, should I have a control rum for every tasting session? Like, should should I go and pick up a bottle of the latest vintage release and just have that to taste alongside every group? So there's always a control, a, a common comparison point, so to speak. Right. And then, John, I have an idea that I do think is a little crazy, and I want to do it so badly, but at the same time, I don't want to do it because it would kind of destroy the experience in some way. Okay. So there's 18 of these bottles. Okay, yeah. And there's an ounce and a half in each of them, which adds up to just over, just a little bit over 750 milliliters. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) But imagine... An 18-bottle ECS release blend. Who on the planet has ever tasted that? I I bet you no one else has done that. Do you think anyone out there has done that? You know, far be it from me to to really think about what people have done. And maybe there is somebody out there that has been crazy enough, to your point, to do that. But no, I'm also going to say I don't think most rum fans, if they were in possession of this this (laughs) cash that you have would think, you know what, I'm just going to infinity bottle this thing and we're going to go for it. Uh, Well, infinity bottle is a very crude way of describing (laughs) the experience that that I have just put out there. I I mean, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to 
see what happens when you take 18 exceptional cast releases and blend them all together. I mean, what what do you get? Is You remember when we were talking with Mitch Wilson from yeah. Black Tot, how he was talking about the idea of super blends? Yeah. I feel like calling this a super blend is better than Infinity Bottle. You know, I, I agree. I would, I'll give you that. I think the term makes sense there. Uh, I still think you're incredibly crazy to, to do that. Um <laughs> But I, I, I grant you the point. I do grant you the point that, hey, there is a special experience that could be had there. But is it more special than the experience and the pleasure you could get from trying them by themselves and one at a time in any one of the orders, really, that you just mentioned? That's the, th- that's the point I keep coming back to, yeah. is I think that the, the, the experience of being able to compare in different ways right. is more valuable and probably more memorable more instructive more interesting yeah than just putting them all in one big blend i feel like if i was trying to create the most viral content imaginable mm-hmm. like you know when you see those youtube videos and the thumbnail is someone with like their mouth open yeah like what's going on and there's like some big headline like i blended 18 four square rums what <laughs> you know that kind of thing i feel like that would get some some good clicks we'd probably get some good engagement yeah. off of that but you know, I also feel like, again, I just, I can't bring myself to do it. I, I think the nuances between a lot of the blends, uh, a, a lot of each release would be lost in that blend. Yeah. Because, because you know, as we've mentioned before, and as I think a lot of people out there think, there there tends to be a good deal of overlap sure. between yeah. releases in that. And that's not to say that the releases aren't distinct, that there aren't unique ones, that right. it's not interesting to compare them, because it totally is, but... There is an overall kind of common foundation, yeah, I think, yeah. in a lot of those rums, and so it's it's not the kind of thing where you're bringing a lot of disparate, uh, disparate, disparate, disparate. Um, yeah, yeah, one of those. Mm-hmm. You're not bringing a lot of different elements together. Right, right. I, I feel like the whole would, would wouldn't be greater than the sum of the parts right. in, in this in this case. You're you're not blending it, you know, a Jamaican overproof and something way different right i get i get what you mean yeah yeah but yeah so uh, i have a i have an idea for you and maybe you okay. maybe you have thought this already but you said you have one ounce and 1.25 ounces is what you said an ounce and a half oh an ounce and a half even better samples okay so here here's my thought then porque no las dos why don't you do both <laughs> why not both <laughs> <laughs> why don't you take half an ounce and create the super blend, half an ounce of each of these, and then you uh-huh. have that, right? You still have an That's ounce true. left of everything else. And if you wanted to, Will, you could take half an ounce, do it chronologically, and the other half mm-hmm. an ounce on a different night, I would, I would tell you, uh, and do it grouped, like you said, in groupings That's for true. comparison. And I mean, it, it, if it were me doing it i'm just saying i i would think that that would be a way to do it and and by the way i wanted to uh praise your patience here <laughs> yeah i've just been staring at this box. Uh, yeah to have uh, those it's just and like not, lo- right right and not dig it's into just them. lying on yeah. a chair open in the hallway downstairs oh my gosh uh, yeah 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 you, you you need to get on that or else uh you know somebody i i know your address and they, they might just be missing uh soon so there's <laughs> <laughs> a, a a heist um, a rum yeah, heist I, 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 <laughs> I did some quick some quick Google calculations, and so if I took the half ounce and created the super blend, okay, that's nine ounces, which equals two hundred sixty six milliliters. So you know that that's, that's a nice little that's yeah. a yeah 
that that's that's several sessions that might be interesting yeah so, all right I've, I've got to think about this a little more but if you're listening and you have a, a brilliant idea an interesting approach for all this please send us an email host at rumcast.com that's h-o-s-t at rumcast.com let us know or just you know leave a comment on social media we'll see it it'll, it'll, it'll get to us somehow <laughs> so anyway i'll report back with whatever ends up happening but all that to say we have an excellent interview to get to on this episode and you know i was talking about excep- exceptional casks this is the that's right the mother load mm-hmm. of exceptional casks we had Karsten Vlierboom, past guest of the Rumcast. Uh, you may know him from ENA Shear. He is the chief rum officer. Uh, yes, that is his official title, which we, we get into the nuts and bolts of that right at the beginning of the interview. But we wanted this time to talk about the other side of the business, which is the main rum company. And so ENA Shear is kind of like the big blending house, essentially, mm-hmm, while mm-hmm. main rum, their focus is on individual casks, many of which are rare or very old, if you are, you know, a lot of those really great independently bottled releases of, you know, 20 year old Hampton or or something like that, a lot of those casks are being sourced from main rum company Mm -hmm. in England. And they have their own little whole fascinating history. And, you know, Karsten is kind of, he has a front row seat to kind of seeing how the market for these types of rums has evolved over the years. And just like the process of, of sourcing these casks and managing these casks, it's a whole really fascinating world it is, yeah. of how some of the tastiest rum in the entire world is kind of being managed and how that inventory is uh, sourced and, and all, all the nuts yeah. and bolts of that is super fascinating. And Karsten is just a, a fun guy to talk to. But, uh, but yeah, John, any, any, any takeaways to, to add from the interview before we get into it? He, he, he is great to talk to, and I'm glad we got another chance to talk to him. One of the things I loved about it, and maybe this is super geeky, but hey, this is the place to be super geeky about rum, right? Um, it, uh-huh. it is the, like, the, the, I don't know if you'd call it logistics, really, but like how they manage those barrels and how they age over time and then he gave us a lot of information on what what happens if they start to age out or get you know all of that i thought was just so fascinating and like if if i were handed the keys to like this this you know warehouse like oh my gosh how would i even start to approach this in a way that i think you'd start to approach it by by drinking it (laughs) i think you're right (laughs) i think that would be the first thing uh and and i would probably uh you know want to experience everything like you said but in 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 ways of figuring out how do i then make this make sense to rum aficionados as well right right so yeah and yeah there's this really interesting kind of dance that we got into and it's just like how do you know when is the right time exactly yeah because like none of these things are static objects they're dynamic they're always changing right and you know rum can get there can be a point where it peaks and after that it and of course taste is subjective but you know stuff becomes more valuable as it ages but you can reach a point where there's too much age exactly how do you know when to sell something how do you know if someone wants to buy something and you'd be like no you can't buy it yet because it's going to get better you know where do you start Um, leading somebody that wants to buy some rum even and you have that much of it yeah so super fun conversation uh i'm really excited for people to hear it and yeah let's just let's just bring on karsten Hey, Rumcasters. Ed Hamilton and Brock Smith wanted to bring rum lovers in the U.S. a chance to experience something that hasn't been very easy to find here previously. Single cask, single mark, single still, 
unadulterated rum expressions from Guyana. With the release of the new Hamilton single cask series, that's exactly what they did. Now, if you want to experience foolproof releases from each of the four diamond stills, the Saval multi-column, the Versailles wooden pot, the Enmore wooden coffee, and the historic Port Morant double pot, you finally can. The series also includes releases from Clarendon in Jamaica and Foursquare in Barbados. All six of those expressions are extremely limited, and you can get them now at the Florida Rum Society shop online. And hey, you don't even have to live in Florida to be able to order these because they can ship to quite a few states across the U.S. Head on over to floridarumsociety.com forward slash Hamilton soon to grab some of these limited bottlings before they're gone. Now back to the show. All right, so we are here with Karsten Vlierboom. Uh, Karsten, is it, are you CEO or is it Chief Rum Officer? Because I went, I just, I, do, I always double check people's titles before I hop on here and I, I was pretty <laughs> sure it was CEO, but on your LinkedIn profile, it said Chief Rum Officer, which I thought was even cooler. So I don't know which one you prefer to go by. It is the coolest one. So that's the <laughs> Chief, Chief Rum Officer. Yeah, it's, it's, that's actually one of the, one of the new, uh, new things here at, uh, or, in, in, in my job space anyway, that I, uh, I hired a CEO to do all the, all the quote unquote boring stuff. Oh, <laughs> and, did you really? Uh, I did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize basic, that. Basically, um, I moved myself into a position where, where I could be chief rum officer, a bit of a quirky title, which, uh, only a real rum company could have, I guess. I'm, and, I'm uh, trying to get to a point where I can name myself chief rum <laughs> officer of, of my own company as well. So maybe, maybe, yeah. uh, maybe after this, you can give me sort of the, the step-by-step walkthrough of how to do that. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 <laughs> it's these titles, right? So you have CEO, CCO, CPO, CEO, yeah. and you have CRO. So CRO could mean a lot of things, but Revenue, only rum, rum officer, right? Revelry, all sorts <laughs> of things. So we were just talking uh, before we started recording and realized it had been almost two years since the last time you came on the show, um, as well with with Niels to tell us all about ENA Shear. I know yep. today we're going to talk uh, shift things more to Maine Rum Company, but before we get into that, I did just want to kind of quickly catch up on a few things that have changed at Shear, other other than you know the the Chief Rum Officer title, which is great. Uh, I'm <laughs> really happy to learn that. Um, but I yeah. also saw that that y'all opened a new office. I think at the end of 2021, and I, I like I saw a picture of it in an email that went out, and it looked like a really cool building. I think it mentioned that you have like a rum blending experience center, and it sounded yep. really interesting. So I, I'd love to hear just about you know the new office and anything new or kind of different it's allowed you to do. Well, it's it's that. So it's it's my job title, which is uh, which is the major difference, obviously. Yes, of and, and the new office. Yes, yeah, so the new office. Basically, we were we were you know, a company's growing. We have a lot of people. We had a a, a very small and, and quaint and quirky office in 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 the Amsterdam city center, which has a, a lot of uh, you know museum value, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. There's not enough space for all those people. Right. So we needed to figure out what to do, and then uh, basically talk talk to the landlord. He said, "Well, you know, I'll, I'll put up a building if you uh, <laughs> you pay a bit more rent." Uh, and then in the end, well, you have to design new offices and, and we thought, well, we could try and replicate something which is centuries old in, in, in like the Amsterdam canal house, but that's never going to work because it's never yeah. going to be authentic. So we went radically different and, and made something quite modern with, uh, uh, yeah, concrete and steel and wood. 
and uh, made enough space. And uh, I always wanted five meter high windows, so we, we we achieved that as well, just with a with a view of over the harbor. I was going to say it um, looked like a lot of windows uh, in the, yeah, in the picture that went out. It is it is actually something quite different, and uh, so what we did is uh, uh, created like a space where where we have the uh, the world of our of our clients. Uh, so they have like a bar with with loads and loads of different rooms. Oh, that's cool. Um, and and opposite that we have our world, which is you know the all the components which we use to make put those rooms together. And then, and then we have the view over the harbor, so symbolically where, where the run would come in. A lot of uh, sort of references to the past, uh, quite a bit of uh, sustainability put into the building, obviously, because mm-hmm. it's very modern and it's, it's, it's quite uh, energy, energy efficient and very, very good for the people. And, and, and you know, really stepped it up uh, a few centuries, uh, I would say, um, <laughs> compared to the last office building. How how old is the the previous office building? Yeah, it's about yeah, I guess uh, 250, 300 years wow. old, something like oh, that. Is that all? Oh, <laughs> just fra- practically brand new. <laughs> it, it's funny because that that I feel like in Europe that's more of like a normal age for a building. I whereas assume, here yeah. here in the U.S. that's like almost yeah. as old as it gets in a lot of places. <laughs> something that's um, fifty yeah. years old here gets torn down. It's like oh my god, <laughs> exactly. that's done. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, they were they were built they were built sturdy, but. Uh, yeah, not very practical, and, and you can imagine in a city center, it is. Uh, it's it's nice, and, and and there's a lot of you know lively things around, and and uh, but that means a lot of tourists as well, and for the people working there, it's it's quite it's less efficient. Let's mm. put it that way. Is is anyone able to come and visit now? I, um, I was going to ask the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Purely out of self interest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, we're not like like uh, open for 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 visitors in 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 any way or form, but we do get a lot of uh, clients and uh, rum enthusiasts and, mm-hmm. uh, and people coming by. Uh, slowly starting, obviously, while while uh, uh, COVID is is disappearing, but uh, yeah, more and more people coming by and. Uh, you know, doing doing a bit of blending on on the spot with us, or 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 just you know showing what they want, or mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, yeah, a lot of activity there. Pretty cool. So uh, shifting over to our our main topic of conversation today. Oh, huh. Nice. I know you like that one, Will. Yeah, good uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> nice bridge. Uh, very clever. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we we spoke a lot, Carson, with you last time on EH year and the, the history of that company. And now we re- recall back in 2001, there was the merge with Maine Rum Company. So yep. I guess the first kind of maybe good starting place is, what can you tell us were the biggest differences between Maine Rum Company then in 2001 versus 2022? Well, there's a 20-year gap, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and, and in those 20 years, things have changed, yes. When when we uh, when we merged or took over the the, the main rum company, um, th- their activities were uh, basically selling bulk rum in UK, and mm-hmm. they had a bit of cast on the side, where uh, Ben Cross, who had, who had founded the company, uh, had always kept a bit of old Guyana rums, which he previously was doing the transport for for Demerara distillers, and uh, he built up quite a collection. And over the 20 years uh, since then, we've been, we've continued building the collection. Uh, and we've also concentrated uh, the main rum company activities more on just rare and old, uh, and aged rum and casks. Got it. So these days, if you, if you come to us, it's, it's more like a, a group where that's fear you by the, the bulk rum, uh, the blends. 
Right. And at the main rum company, you will bet, buy anything in cask, single origin, single, you know, whatever, but it's in a cask. Uh, I hadn't realized that they had also done bulk rum uh, back before yep. then. So got it. So now it's basically diversified. So you have the, the blending side of the house with cheer and the cask side of the house with main rum. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, and it's, it's, it's a very clear focus. So when, when we took over, they, they had a position on the UK market and, and they were basically the distributors for uh, sphere bulk rums on the UK market. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how we get to know them uh, as you know, mm-hmm. very, very well and, and, and thought, well, this is complimentary if we take the cast business as well and then move that into what, what it is now. Well, one thing I was curious about is just, obviously there's been a increasingly large emphasis on quote unquote, you know, premium rums, more expensive rums, rare rums. Uh, yep. in recent years. And you've had kind of a front row seat to seeing what that market is like, at least on like, you know, the the single cask type scale. And yep. I'm just interested in like, how has your clientele evolved in recent years? Have you noticed any major differences in the types of customers who buy from you or perhaps an increase of a certain type of customer? Like, what does that person usually look like? Yeah, so so at the main rum company, uh, really, what we see is more and more of the of the independent rum uh, bottlers, IBs, you would, you would call them in the right. mm-hmm. There is a uh, there's an increasing number of people doing that because they all want to move into the rum space and and, and uh, they want to be able to bottle something unique or something quite special. And it's very difficult to find these things unless you go to the main rum company, obviously, where we have a, a, a deep and wide collection of, of casks. Yeah. What you see is you see a lot of uh, uh, companies who are active in the whiskey industry, who, who were used to doing this this type of activity, who now expand into rum. Yeah. So the the, the we used to have them. Huh? We used to have like the. The Caden heads and and the and, and the Bristol spirits right. and Isle and all these, you know, renowned Berry Brothers, all these renowned uh, mm-hmm. uh, UK companies who had very very nice single cask offerings and things like that. But you see more and more people moving into that space, and we we make it relatively easy for a newcomer to just buy a cask and and, and do a an, an independent bottling. Would people come in from the whiskey world? Do you? Do they often require a, a lot of education? Do they rely on your expertise very heavily? I'm assuming everyone to some degree relies on your expertise, but no. or does does it seem that they come in and they've really done their homework on you know the rum landscape, the different mm-hmm. styles, the distilleries, and things like that? What does that look like? Uh, whiskey people are very very knowledgeable on on, on whiskey and uh, <laughs> are 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 quick in, in picking up knowledge on on the okay. rum. You know they obviously know what quality distillate is and right. they know what age does to distillate uh, and they know how to bottle these things and they know how to market these things yeah. so uh, they are you know th- by far uh, the most demanding but also the easiest clients because you know you, ha- you just have to explain what is the curriculum vitae of this particular cast they're looking at mm-hmm. and they will pick it up easily and they'll know what to do and they'll know how to how to deal with it but, you know they also understand that uh, the do's and don'ts in, in, in terms of uh, sure. um, distillery names, uh, uh, things like that. That answer was going one of two directions with the way it started. And I'm glad it went the direction that you took it in as opposed to, you know, whiskey people know whiskey. 
No, I mean, this is on, 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 I mean, just, just to give you an example, I mean, if you, you would have a lot of gin people, uh, maybe moving into rum uh, right. or people moving into rum, they have a different concept of distillate. Right. And, and it's, it's a little more. That makes sense uh, also. Yeah. A little more difficult to, to, to make them understand the, the specificities of one particular cask versus the other. Because if you're a gin person, then basically you have an alcohol and, and, and you, you make all your varieties by different uh, botanicals and right. like mm-hmm. extremely mm-hmm. interesting, but it's, it's a different sort of technique and, 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 and thinking than the spirit being aged in, in, in wood, uh, right. in various places in various wood types and things like that. Right. That shared experience between those two categories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get too far with that side of it, I, I kind of wanted to, to start with the basics uh, from a different angle for main rum, which is I want to know, I'm curious, who exactly selects the barrels that make it over there to the Liverpool facility and how that whole process unfolds? Can you walk us through the, the initial evaluation process of single casks and, and all of that side? Well, uh it's, it's not as if we go around the Caribbean and, and just find one cask at a time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although that sounds cool, too. <laughs> I like that vision, though. Yeah, just everyone yeah, yeah. on a boat, just we'll cask take by that cask. One. Yeah, yeah, next island, we'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that might be the romantic view of, of an independent bottler. Sometimes it's the romantic story of an independent bottler. But what happens is that, like I just said, over 20 years, we've been building up these, uh, uh, like a collection of casks, right? Mm-hmm. So 20 years ago, we would have bought an ISO tank of, of some liquid from some origin mm-hmm. and uh, put a few thousand liters in, in casks aside. So that's that's not selecting a cask, a single cask at this point in time, but it's, it's, it's putting something in a cask 20 years ago. Right. And, and over all those years, you, you, you keep putting various distillates, you know, we, we will buy an eight-year-old from Barbados and, and put it put it in a cask and, and leave it in Liverpool for God knows how many years. And so then this cask will, it's, it's had a, it's eight years in Barbados and then it develops a little differently in, in, in Liverpool, but it has like, a, it develops a story and it's both stories which are being sold. It, it sounds like there's multiple ways to go about this in the sense that you could essentially buy, you know, large quantities of rum, not in casks and put it into casks once it gets to Liverpool, or you can buy rum that is already aged a bit at origin and is in casks and you can bring those there for further aging. So do you continue to kind of do both of those at like at this stage of main rum or is it just one way now? No, no, it's very much so. We, we still do that because we have to, we can't just keep selling stuff now and not having anything in 10 years. Uh, right. So uh, it's it's very much still the case. It's more of a, of a port- inventory portfolio management game on, okay. on that side. Then, you know, I, I select this particular cask and put it down and then uh, uh, it's ready for sale. What is interesting, obviously, is when is a cask ready for sale? That is, yeah. Yeah, I know we were going to get into that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that selection process is, is obviously where we, we know what we have and uh, we, we evaluate those casks on a, on a regular basis and that would be uh, annually, biannually in, 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 uh, in some cases and in some cases where you know this distance has been developing over, over a while. You do it maybe a little more often. 
And then the, the guys at Main Run itself. So we have two Ian's there, well, Ian Hoyles and Ian Smith. Mm-hmm. They, they are the specialists. They're the specialists about the story of a cask and they, they know when it's uh, quote unquote ready to be offered out. I see. So they're the curators in a way. Curators. Yeah. And yeah. then ultimately, so the one who selects the cask from a list is the one who's, who's, who selects a single cask to be bought. Right. Which is a client. When you're, when you're purchasing casks from a distillery, do you already essentially have a set idea of what type of cask you want to buy and when, kind of like you were saying, like managing inventory, or are you also kind of evaluating them before purchasing them? Maybe not on like a cask by cask level, but I'm just kind of interested in like, how do you assess, you know, factors like quality, uniqueness, availability, like how do you look at that? Or, or are you at a, a point of maturity now as a company where you essentially know everything that's out there, know what you want, and you know like, okay, it's, it's you know, March of 2022, <laughs> that means we need to go buy more of, you know, X, Y, and Z rums right now. And it's not, it's not as if you can just go out there and buy whatever you want. Right. right? So I cannot go out and buy, uh, uh, let's say, an eight-year-old St. Lucia rum for, for, for several reasons, because St. Lucia right now is not selling any bulk rum to other people, right. but in the past we, we bought St. Lucia rums. So if I just look at my portfolio of St. Lucia rums, yeah, uh, there's going to be a hole there. So I'd like, I'd like to plug that, but I can't. So we, we look at different origins, we look at the different age ages, we look at the different age levels, just like, like a portfolio again. Right. And then you try and uh, either plug it with inventory, which we have in Amsterdam, because we have enormous amounts of age rum in Amsterdam as well, or we go out and, and, and talk to the distilleries and see if they have some surplus to offer and, and try and collect as much as we can. This is a super geeky question, but in terms of you mentioned a portfolio, how, how does that portfolio get produced? In other words, are you using a uh, an online system to do that? Uh, is it a proprietary system you've developed? Are you still handwriting notes to each other and figuring it out as you go? Or how does that work? And then also, when you get a chance to follow up of how do you then translate to how things are stored in main rum? Because I assume that that's also part of the challenge. There's, there's a lot of handwritten notes, but, but there's also an <laughs> extensive ERP system, yeah, inventory system. Basically, you can't just do this on handwritten notes and think, oh, I might have a cask of this there somewhere, uh, because it's all in, in, uh, in, in, in a customs warehouse, right? So the customs warehouse, the customs office always want to know exactly what's where. So you have very, very good inventory notes, and, and they're all in, in ERP systems these days, obviously. So the whole notion of a forgotten cask is something very strange to us. <laughs> right. I think, yeah, that, that, that concept of, uh, of kind of forgetting about a cask came up last time we talked. And I think you said that if, if someone has a forgotten cask, they're either making it up or they're a really bad business person. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Are you able to talk any more about the specifics of how you lay out the warehouse design and how that's done is, is, is something that is a steady state kind of, or do you, it, it changes over time? Yeah, it, it changes over time. And, and that's another thing which has changed probably in, in the last few years is that uh, we used to have everything in Liverpool, but now we have, uh, we have inventories in Liverpool, we have inventories in Scotland, oh. and we have inventories in, in, in Amsterdam, and we have I- inventories at origin. So let's oh, say wow. in, in Jamaica and places like that. Now. 
the layout of a warehouse, uh, the one in Liverpool is a very, very old tea warehouse. It's not something that, you know, just you don't walk in and say, I want, I want, uh, you know, this corner to be different because it's better for the, for the airflow and things like that, that right. building is as is. In Amsterdam, the uh, situation is slightly different. It's, it's a modern warehouse, but, uh, but there the whole building condition is, uh, is, is created out of uh, let's say safety reasons, yeah, because you're you're storing alcohol at a certain right. percentage and all that. So right. it's dangerous goods management almost. Right. So there's nothing romantic about that. But you know, we have, we went to a very nice building with the terracotta tiles on the roof, things like that. No, it's just has to be a safe as possible. In Scotland, again, it's yeah. quite different because in Scotland it's it's warehouses which had either been made to store whiskey or scotch, and and uh, they now hold rum as well. So. The planning is not about how do I put casks so they age uh, in a certain way. The planning is more of this, how, where do I put my collection so it's more convenient either for transport or for keeping. Uh, yeah. Right, interesting. Okay. Enter well, Brexit. Enter Brexit. So ah, what happens? Yes. <laughs> we, we brought some of the inventory from, from Liverpool to Amsterdam because we have European clients. Who don't want to, you know, wait for, for for months for their for the products, although they wow. have to sometimes now because it's it's it still is quite different. So, so the distribution and organization of casks among those warehouses is more um, a logistical question as, yeah. as as opposed to you know I was going to ask because we we hear this dichotomy sometimes of tropical aging continental aging and we got into that a little bit last time and why you prefer saying aged at origin because sometimes you can have something in a climate that maybe isn't associated as tropical but has many of those qualities and there's variation even between tropical climates and i would imagine there's variation between the climate in Liverpool versus the climate in Scotland, mm -hmm. um, you know, pro exactly. probably similar, but I would imagine some variations. So I wasn't yeah. sure if you ever kind of assess, well, we know these types of barrels age a little differently in our Scotland warehouse. So we like to send them there, you know, versus mm -hmm. Liverpool, but it sounds like it's more just kind of uh, logistics that, that take priority. Yeah. You, and you take it into account, but um, if you are aging to, to get to a certain profile, then these things are very important because if you're aging to get to a certain profile and, and you want it to like to, to age really fast or intense or uh, things like that, then, mm -hmm. then you will uh, find that spot in your warehouse where you know the sun is going to shine a bit more than, than, than in the other spot in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. But we are, not, we are not aging per se to reach a certain profile, but we are keeping that distance until it's rare enough to be selected by somebody who likes that. So I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that now because I think that's a really interesting challenge. And when we talked last time, you had this comparison uh, of Maine Rum Company almost being like an antique store, where sometimes mm -hmm. you'll hang on to inventory longer because you know the value is going to increase. But at the yes. same time, we've talked a lot on this show about how quality of spirit isn't necessarily just a linear growth chart with age, um, like right. a cask. And it's all subjective to a degree, but a cask doesn't necessarily just at 100 years, it's going to be even better or something like that. You, <laughs> you know, you lose rum, it, it can become too intense, it can take on too much from the barrel. So how do you, you mentioned a little bit, like you're, you're doing some assessments regularly, tasting and things like that, but when do you know the time is just right to sell a particular barrel or group of barrels? And 
do, do you have people like who have seen casks and are like, I know you're not going to sell it to me yet, but in five years I really want it. Like what is, what does that <laughs> put look their like? name on it? Yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there like a wait list or something for, for certain casks? Well, it's funny you say that about a waiting list is it's, it's something we're thinking about now for, because there is, you know, through, through visits and rumors and things, uh, people, people know we have certain casks and, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're, you know, knocking on our door on a regular basis. They want that particular cask, et cetera. So we might put that on a waiting list or, or we, we earmark it for certain, uh, certain buyers who have been mm-hmm. very loyal in the past or something like that. But yeah, when, when is, when is a cask ready to be sold? It's, it's actually, when does somebody want to buy a cask? Mm. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of comparison with the antique stories is still very valid because it, you know, there you have a, a collection of antiques and, and you might have a, a, a few uh, Louis the Sixteenth tables or so or, or 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 something like that. But mm-hmm. they, you know, at some point you just might have just one. And uh, are we going to hold on? If you have two, you, you you might want to sell one and hold on to the other one until you know another point in time. Yes, and it's, it's difficult to assess when to sell that last table, right? It's, it's the same. When very difficult to assess when to sell the last cask of a certain like like the last Caroni. the last Caroni cask or something like that because you're, you're not going to get another is, one. Uh, Caroni is, is a nice example uh, where where obviously there is there is inventory, but we're holding on to it as long as we can, and and uh, we will you know sell one every now and then, but mm-hmm. not too many. Uh, and and there is obviously there is the other side of it where you know it becomes over woody or or it becomes you know the the, the quality drops off. Uh, that is that right. is de- definitely a risk. So this is something. So we need to keep on looking at those casks. Is it still is is it still of a quality to be to be sold? Because once it's over a certain point, yeah, you know, what, what can you do with it? Then it's. Then if you sell it, it's just for the name, and it's not because it's, right. it's actually good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I had a question about that, actually, as well. But I, I was also going to say, so the job of the two Ians, then, is kind of what you're describing, right, in terms of assessing the barrels over time and them being, quote-unquote, ready also. So like you said, it's it's kind of a marriage between what are people looking for and that side of it with the other side. And at the risk of stretching the metaphor, even an antique shop has a front window right? Where you push things you want to sell to the front window and some of the stuff stays in the back. So I assume there's a relationship that's ongoing there also as part of it. Yeah. And the front window in our case is, is the age drum offers. So you, you get people asking for, you know, what do you have? Do you have some Jamaicans? And then uh, basically what happens is we, we put those in an age drum offer. And then you, so you select from all your portfolio, which ones you're going to offer now based on the question and based on what you have. Mm-hmm. That's a shop window. And what is funny now is that we have a, we have a cask selector on the, on the website now. I'm not sure if you've seen I that. Saw we it. did yes. see that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's funny because there, uh, it's, it's like the easy access point for, uh, uh, for people to sort of come in and, and advise us of what they're looking for. And then that's like a, a, a very good and concise question for the EADS to answer. And for the Ians to to select from the inventory what is uh, to be put on the age drum offer for this particular question. As a follow-up to what you said about the barrel uh, sort of over-aging or becoming, at some point it becomes less valuable, right? We, we imagine. Right. 
what do you do with it then? So do you push it into a blend? Do you chuck it overboard into the harbor and hope nobody notices? <laughs> um, wh- what happens when you recognize the space it's taking up is worth more than it is? One would never chuck any room in the harbor. <laughs> Where did you get that idea, John? Come on. Oh, yeah, that, is, that is not a good idea. That's not... <laughs> Uh, even if it's even if it's past its prime, uh, rum can can be used in blends. That's that's uh, that's true. So what we could do is you use a, a part of it to enhance something else, which needs just just the element that uh, that you have there. Uh, blending is is uh, yeah. How do you call it? You you can do a lot of things with blending, and you can have uh, any any rum liquid can be used in a blend. So the, the short answer is we use it in blends. Okay. Either on uh, uh, a cask that may rum, well, you, you you can imagine that they have some remnant casks which are just don't know exactly what's in there, but the quality of the liquid becomes very interesting. Mm-hmm. So what you don't know exactly is, I mean, you don't know if it's if it's a single origin, a single uh, vintage, or something like that. But it'll be uh, an amazing blend which contains, for argument speak, this this bit of Caroni from that that era. So then it would be accurate to say that at Main Rum, you do have some casks that aren't just single cask vintages. They're sort of a blend done inside Component. a single cask. Yep. Oh, you know, one of the things with, with the notion of, of casks getting older, the, the other factor is obviously losing rum to, yep. to the angel share. And one thing I've seen more attempts at in recent years are sort of technologies to limit angel share. Um, and mm-hmm. it's interesting, you know, just to get people's take on that, uh, because you see the economic advantage, but at the same time, it's like, if we do this, is it going to change some characteristic right. of the rum? And when I've talked to people who, you know, manufacture some of these technologies, their answer is, no, it doesn't. I, I mean, there's a longer answer to it, but essentially, it's so no. far based on what we know, it, it's not changing the distillate in a meaningful way. And I, I just, obviously, this those technologies would have pretty big implications for an operation like main rum. And I was just curious if you have explored those or if you have an opinion on them. No, we don't, we don't wrap our casks in plastic or, 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 or try to, to do air conditioning or, or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We leave the distillates in, in a cask and, and mainly we would like to have them in the cask that came in. However, if the cask, if you know that the cask is becoming, uh, uh, old and, and, and rickety, let's say. Then we would recast something. Oh, and we, okay. You would put it in a in a sound cask. Now a sound cask does not need to be new, but right. uh, because you have you have like very old spent casks, which are still sound. And the older a rum gets, if you put it in a in a very young cask, you're going to push it. And right. That doesn't you know. So we're very apprehensive on on the type of cask we would select for recasking operations. Is that still considered a single cask if that happens, or is that how do you categorize that? Well, if it if it goes from one single cask, so as in one piece into right. another piece, you, you still say it's a single cask. And if you consolidate casks, let's say if, if, if it's, it's very old and you have you're, you're you're down at one third of the of the liquid level, then it's it's good to put two casks into one cask. Then you do a recasting operation, and it becomes a new single cask, right? Yeah, um, and normally that will be done with the same what we call rotation. So a rotation is like a a, a liquid lot it could be originally it could have been ten casks, and now it's just you know it's just the last three 
and and they're as low that you just put them back into one cast, so there's just one cast right. left. Wow. But what is the meaning of a single cast? I mean, you have to um, you have to define that. It's a philosophical question. It's like Theseus's ship. Theseus's ship yes. question. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is exactly. Yeah, it's like if if you replace the individual stave of a cask right. one by one, is it the same right. cask? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's at least you have these ancient wooden boats, right? Which which they say well. My wooden boat is, you know, it's, it's from 1928, and and at least 20% is original. Right, yeah. right, yeah. You mentioned earlier the idea of a cask having a uh, a CV, a curriculum vitae. Um, so, mm-hmm. are you sort of keeping track of that stuff? And I'm I'm imagining you make all of that information available to whoever purchases it. That purchases yeah. it, say like, hey, here's like the history of this cask. Here's what happened to it. It used to be in these barrels. Now it's in this, and and etc. Yeah, and that's 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 exactly all the knowledge that these these uh, the, the tweens in uh, in Liverpool have because they know they know sort of the lifespan of the liquid in that cask, uh, where it's been and what we've done to it. And you know, we might want to have a, we have like a, a, a bigger batch of uh, of casks. We will, might want to take a few of those and finish them off in a different cask, maybe in a pork pipe or in a sherry cask or or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. On that note, by the way, we're seeing a lot more secondary maturations or finishes, you know, diff- I know there's different approaches to that, different terminology people like to use, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, featuring cooperage, the previously held wine or different spirits, uh, even no. casks made of unconventional types of wood now. Yeah. And so I wanted yeah. to know, I, I, I know I've seen references to, you know, obviously you're not just using one type of cask there. I imagine you have sherry and, and port and, and stuff like that, but how creative yeah. is main rum getting with cask types? And do you find yourself doing more of that now than, than you used to? I'd say we're, we're still a little bit old fashioned or, or, or maybe a better words, a little bit more traditional. So we're not, we're not on the forefront of experimenting with rare and aged rums in, 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 peanut wood or, or, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> yeah, some, somebody told me the other day, peanut wood. That's why. That, I'm, I'm not sure if that's... I don't know what peanut wood is. Neither yeah, do I. Well, nor do I. <laughs> <laughs> or chestnut or... But, uh-huh. you know, you can, you can imagine that there's a lot of people who, 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 who are very creative in, 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 that, uh, in that area. But maybe that, that would be something for, for if you have younger distillates, you know, where, where you really want to experiment what, sure. what this wood does to a distillate. Whereas if you have rare and aged rums, which have been in cast for a long time, are you going to take the risk of experimenting with, you know, whatever exotic wood type at the end of a lifespan of a distillate? Right. Well, that, that's not really what we're, uh, what we're after. But we do. Uh, more and more, you see finishes in in in, in different cast types. So we have uh, we obviously talk to to whiskey people and get peated cast or or, or English whiskey cask or, or mm-hmm. you know oh, that's quite exotic, but it's not not in terms of wood, but in terms of mm-hmm. what's been in there. Oh sure, yeah. No, I've I've had some you know rum that spent time in Lafroy casks and things like that, and it can leave yep. can make quite a mark on. It. But as you said, it was a younger rum, so. Um, right. I think that approach, you know, that as you were saying, a more traditional approach kind of makes sense when dealing with stuff that's as rare as you have, because it's almost like you want to preserve that rum like as it is and, you yep. know, allow your buyers to if they want to take that and do something with it, they can. But you're kind of yep. a, a steward of that distillate and um, preserving yep. it almost. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. And on, on the on the sphere side. So we do see, obviously, 
we sell runs to people who then do all sorts of experiments with with further uh, uh, you know aging in in be it in, in in Scandinavia somewhere or wherever they want on the bottom of a sea. Yeah, they can they can do all sorts <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> but but they would generally take a take a, a little bit of a of a younger run so they can experiment with this. Right. Yes. Less, less risky if something's exactly. wrong. <laughs> right. Yep. I'm gonna take this twenty five year old rum and throw it in a whatever cask peanut cask and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I get you. In talking about all of these, and you mentioned there's different facilities as well, different uh, places that uh, warehouses, but how big of a problem is space for you to hold all of these? Like, are, are you full or <laughs> how, do, um, how does that? Yeah. Well, we don't, we don't own uh, warehouses. So we, we uh, all the warehouses we use are third party places and uh, just expanded places in Amsterdam, in, in Antwerp as well. And we, we always have. Uh, partners with warehouse space. Um, I say partners because these people need to know what they're doing in respect of, you know, receiving caps and handling them and, and doing things like that. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, it's not, it's not a matter of uh, we're, we're short of space. Uh, it's more choosing the best locations for, for our uh, spreading of the casks. I would also imagine having them in multiple locations is good from just a mitigating risk standpoint right you have everything yeah. in one place and something goes wrong god forbid that yes. were to happen I, I can't remember which maybe it was heaven hill who had a mm-hmm. a, a rick house go up in flames you know 20 yep. years ago or something like that and it was just like the quantity of of bourbon that that was destroyed was just like mind-boggling um yep. i've heard people still yeah. get sad about it like just bringing it up so i can't imagine something all yeah. the main rum casts were to disappear that would be a tragic tragic day for rum no it is it's it is that is also one of the bad so it's not just logistic but it is also risk mitigation after fire or, or you know god forbid whatever uh, uh incident might occur then at least you have have your your inventory spread out over over several places yeah yeah it was funny we, we were talking with mitch wilson from black tot rum yep. about a month back he lives in amsterdam that's then, right so yeah, yeah. right yeah uh-huh. he said so he'd been, he, he he said be he'd been to those. the new offices and very impressive yep. but exactly. he was <laughs> we were you know talking about trying to accurately recreate being as uh, historically accurate as possible the british navy rums and wanting to you know store it in in large huge open container vats and <laughs> he was like yeah but then you read about you know they caught on fire two times yeah. and you know you, you have nope. to kind of you know modernize a little bit in in some areas so mm-hmm. so so mitch would be one of those guys who would come to the office and have have experience in the experience center and yeah, but there's there's this a guy from the New Zealand Rum uh, Society traveling uh, traveling rum places. Would Richard, come by yeah, and Richard, yeah. and we would we would have him over and just, uh, so it's it's for a lot of people like that. The, the experience center is, is something quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Another thing you mentioned last time we spoke is people's interests kind of increasingly going toward rums from new, different, unexpected locations. Everyone's always looking for something that people haven't had yet, um, yep. which, which I imagine is a, is a challenge for you. How do you try to stay ahead of that? I know obviously you're keeping an eye on every new rum distillery that's out there, but but you know what do you kind of do to stay ahead of, of where people's tastes are going? You, you can't, yeah, I can't really uh, predict people's taste. Right. Mm-hmm. But, what we can do is is look around at new new developments, new distilleries. What we do understand is is that 
people all want something different, want something exotic, want something new. And so the more unexpected places you find rum distilleries, the better it is. So we have rum distilleries in the Netherlands, for argument speak. So we'll, we'll have some of their rums and we'll, we'll start putting them down for, for a, a longer period of time. If that's not to be sold in two years, but maybe in 20 years, it's going to be very interesting. Um, places we're looking now is, is obviously in Asia, there's, uh, there's quite a few initiatives where we're, uh, where we have inroads. There's places in Africa, which are, uh, uh are, are popping up and, mm-hmm. you know, trying, trying to do things. And, um, we get in there early, uh, and, and we, 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 uh, buy liquids and we put them in casks and we leave them for a long time. So it's a, it's, it's a risk, but that's, that's what we do. It's, it's future antiques. And then, uh, you never know if, if, if one of these distilleries is going to be the talk of the town in 10 years, but so then, you know, it's investing it, basically. It's investing. And well, a lot of what we do is investing because inventory is right. You can imagine is there's a lot of money involved in inventory, just sitting there. You lose, you're losing inventory to the angels and, and, and mm-hmm. you're just hoping, hoping that, uh, uh, that over time you can recoup time. You mentioned there, you know, Asia, Africa, I know there's a lot of new distilleries in Australia as well. Are, are there any, when you're kind of surveying all those places, are there any under the radar places? And, and obviously I, there's probably only so much you can share, but I'm just curious <laughs> if there's a specific place or anything that you're, you really feel like in five to 10 years, people are going to be talking about a whole lot more than they are right now. No, I'd, I'd, I'd say regionally, uh, Asia and Africa, Australia, yes. Obviously, we, but we've, uh, I think the whole sort of sudden increased interest in, in Australian rum is, is, is because we had, you know, a, a lot of rum over and, and we started uh, selling that into our, our minds. And then all of a sudden it's, it started to become very, very interesting for a lot of people. Yeah, and along those same lines, I, I think uh, as, as chief rum officer, you have a very close eye on uh, many of the world's leading distilleries and what they're producing. Are there any new trends in rum production that you've seen over the past few years that stand out or anything from producers you you didn't see five or 10 years ago? Yeah, I'd I'd say, well, in terms of of large producers, a large producer is is, is like a a, a mammoth tanker, right? So they don't just turn corks very easily. Right, right. They will will do what they've been doing for years and years and, and, and perfecting that. So you don't see a lot of uh, extremely new things coming out there. There is more use of, of cane juice these days, which, mm-hmm. which I, I find interesting. But I also understand it because you know, molasses is, is a byproduct of the sugar industry and the sugar industry is, is you know, struggling in a lot of places. So that means it, is, it becomes a little more difficult to get molasses and you have to import it or, or do things like that. So if you then have a, another raw material, which is easier to find, which would be juice, uh, you know, you try and find ways to use that and, and, and to create a rum from it. So I see, I see more of that. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a quicker, uh, it's a quicker raw material. If you just have a, have a small mill and, and crush cane and get juice and then use that in your process, you don't need a massive sugar factory at the side. In terms of production, otherwise, yeah, everybody is always trying to perfect what, what they're doing. Went back to, to, to Richard Seal the other day and he has a, a new pot still and is trying just to do things better than before. So if, if people are, are, are putting in new, new, new equipment is going to be, you know, the 2.0 version. Right. I don't, I don't see uh, any massive trends in, in very, very different 
pieces of machinery or all things like that. Yeah. A- anecdotally, I think uh, I, I feel like there is much more pot still happening, but maybe that's just what's being bottled and sold more hot right now. So that was a kind of um, a question also. Yeah, possible. It's, that is a, yeah, it's a bit of a niche, right? So people are looking for, uh, let's say, more premium products. So drink less, but better. Yes. And, and pot still is, is considered a, a more artisanal way of, of creating a rum. So mm-hmm. there is more attention for that. I'm not sure if there's more volumes being pushed out, but there is more attention and people are using pot stills in a, in a, in a different way, maybe. Yeah. I, one, one example I can think of is, um, like Barbincourt, they're bringing back pot stills, uh, for the first time right. since I, right. I think since before the nineties, maybe is when they switched to mm-hmm. all the way column, but they have that history, um, of using pot stills a longer time ago and they're kind of bringing that back. So I'm interested to kind of see what, what comes from them. I would imagine it's, you know, some, some pot still only releases and, and maybe they'll have some that they blend in and stuff, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same what you see at, uh, in, in Venezuela, you have Santa Teresa. Right. And they have a, they have a pot still product, which is, uh, their, their, their top product, but they, they still produce a lot of volume in, in column stills as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we see in, in Europe or in, in duty free of, of Santa Teresa is just one of the expressions that they make. They have mm-hmm. so many more expressions and, mm-hmm. and bigger volumes also for local work. So it's, it's also what is being marketed. Uh, so maybe that's why you see more, more, more. Right. When you, there's more possible in your minds because it's marketed more. For mm-hmm. sure, even if the volume is still very small. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on that note of you know premiumization and everything, uh, I, I mentioned earlier how premium rum sales have been on an upward trajectory for for a good little while now. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just interested. Do you do you ever study kind of what premiumization looked like in other spirit categories in the past, whether it's you know whiskey or agave spirits or anything else? And if so, do you think there are any lessons that apply to rum where it is right now? Yeah, although rum is, is is obviously a completely different category and, and the only one I really know. Right? So you can you can ask me all sorts of tequila questions, you get a rum answer. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah, what what I mean in, in general terms, uh yes, premiumization is is uh, is happening. So you do see that people are are, are drinking less but better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh we see it in, in the blends that we make at the, at Scare. We, we see it in the, in the development of the sales of my rum company, where more and more people are looking for not massive volumes, but very specific casks and with a very specific story. In tequila, you see premiumization because they had a, a, a big volume of, of, yeah, sort of agave spirits. And then they were putting reposado in as a, mm-hmm. as an add on. And then reposado in a certain cask and then with a certain this and then with a certain that. So it's all layers of premiumization put on top of a distillate. And, and uh, the celebrity layer, the George Clooney <laughs> layer as well. Yeah, the layer of celebrity. The rock. That happens as well. Uh, I, I know that in, in, in rum, you know, there is some some celebrity spotting in rum as well, but... Uh, Bruno Mars? <laughs> for argument speaking. Uh-huh. Uh, I think premiumization in, it goes in in two directions. In Bosque, you had the, the sort of filtering through through uh, uh, whatever diamonds and stuff like that, <laughs> right? To make it more premium. So it's it's <laughs> layers of stories. In, in rum, the good thing about rum is is that you have so many different uh, styles and, and so many different origins and so many different 
right. uh, Roman types, that the, the premium is basically the amount of thought you put into a product, be it, be it a blend or be it the selection of a cast or be it the selection of a certain, you know, a certain origin with, with maybe some sustainability angles or things like that. Hmm. Just the thinking of that specific expression makes it premium. Wow, I, I never even thought about that in terms of how premiumization is even conceptually defined. Because you're almost saying it's you know relative to the area and the zone in terms of the spirit itself, and then yeah. more of the the premiumization it comes into the story and the, the the marketing and all of that stuff. You mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to get back to it. The cask selection tool that you have as part of the website, I did really find that interesting and fun, similar to what we did when we talked about the blend last time. Um, yeah. and, and I went through that. I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the intent of the tool and, and what it's doing, and then maybe a, a couple of quick questions in specific on some of the things I found on there. But if you can maybe introduce... Uh, so is this just essentially what you've been doing the whole time, and now you're giving it a process, a lead-in, in a way? Or is there a different intention? No, it's very much, it's, it's uh, what we found with, with this here, with the blending uh, tool, it helps people st structure their thoughts about the question they're asking. Yeah? yeah. So if somebody comes up to you and said, uh, do you have rum? Uh, you know, the answer <laughs> is yes. And, and, then, and then there's like a series of questions I need to ask back before I uh, sort of figure right, out what they're looking yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the same with the main round company, right? So if somebody phones phones you up and says, Do you have any casts? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah. Come to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. We'll tick that one off. And then, you know, would you like, are you looking for a certain origin, you look for a certain age? So you get you always get a set of questions to narrow down the initial uh, request. And based on that set of questions, we can then go to our to our inventory and say, Okay, well, he said he liked this origin and that origin and, and, and this type of age and that type of age. So it's like these, these cars, put them on a list and them over and that's the way it works. Yeah. So basically we call it efficiency, but uh, it, it, it structures the, the questions to a, to a level where we can answer, answer it a little more quickly and concisely. Yeah. And then some of the, the fields are wide open fields. You can just, you know, yep. share whatever you want in there and say what you want. And then others you have to select. So there's one yep. particular I wanted to ask about because recently when Will and I did our kind of end of the year awards, we had thought about like aged, but we didn't want to just have one aged category because, you know, there's a lightly aged and then there's the longer aged. And I, I don't know about Will, but I agonized over trying to find the borderline of, was that four years, five years? And, you know, what is under lightly aged? But you have yes. here, you have options. Do you have any age range in mind? You have three to eight, nine to 14, 15 to 25 or other. And so yep. I wanted to ask you, how did you come up with those? And, and are you satisfied with them? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it gives you, it gives you a, an indication, right? So if, if, if somebody immediately goes to other, yeah, you, you understand it's a, it's, it's a different type of question. than if somebody goes to over 15s, it's, it's just, it's, you, you want to, you want to try and catch the question in a certain bucket and, and then, and then take it from there because based on the cast selection, you do get a conversation you do, you do get a, a, a set of initial extra questions like, uh, so that age, is that really important to you? Because you're, you're asking for, uh, let's, let's say, let, let's say you're very interested in Jamaica rum. You like where the park a lot and you'd like it to be over 40 years old. Then, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> well, there's a problem. There's a, yeah. there's a disconnect there. So it, it helps in, 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 uh, in, in sort of structuring the question to something we can actually answer. 
there was one other question I wanted to ask you about uh, on there, which is any particular story for the brand we need to take into account. Right. Can, can you give me a little clarity on what you're trying to suss out from that? Well, there is a uh, there is a lot of people who have a brand story, right? And and uh, and and they're just t- trying to uh, link a premium cast on top of that. So mm-hmm. if you know if it's if it's a, a story about uh, a, a specific origin or or a story about a specific person, you know, you might have a cask which fits better than the other. So right. It's also, to capture the capture the idea of so, somebody who wants to to bring a a cask to market. Uh, if it, it might, it might be a range of casts, which are all uh, three to five year olds. And, and, uh, you know, I see. Then, there would be something like, uh, uh, I want to show the variety and origins of rum, or if somebody else says, I have a brand story where I'm showing uh, different ages in one origin or something like that. So right. it gives you a lot of, uh, uh, it's one of those really undefined fields where somebody can jump down whatever thoughts they have. Right. It's kind of like, like what's your angle basically is where you're, yeah. uh, Yeah. That could be the question. Yeah. Yeah. But not necessarily like you're not (laughs) expecting people to do, you know, I want this to be aged at the bottom of the sea, like you said, and pirates and, you know, cannons. Yeah. It's more about, I see what you mean now in terms of like, and, and like to your point, it's a wide open enough field that it probably tells you a whole lot about the person and what they're looking for based on that feedback yeah. hmm. it's just like you know you go fishing right if you go fishing you, you might you, you you might go for a certain type of fish or or or, or really you know big game fish you need you need there's a there's a different concept yeah and sometimes you pull up an old boot and <laughs> it happens <laughs> and you go back the next day and then you say well i went fishing <laughs> you had the experience yeah you had the experience I want to kind of wrap things up with with a question that I'm sure you get asked all the time, which are usually the kinds of questions we try to to avoid on the show to some extent. (laughs) But it's one that like I can't help but asking because it's such a fascinating thing to have this entire universe of rum at your fingertips with so much incredible stuff in there. And I'm I'm wondering, is there any cask at Main Rum that you're most looking forward to seeing bottled so you can have a bottle for yourself? <laughs> and the answer is, and, and, and all the guys in the, in, in the office will tell you, if you ask that question to Carson, he's always going to come back like a, an answer like Switzerland. <laughs> <Right>. Keep things <laughs> neutral, yeah. Very, very natural, but there is, you know, obviously in my, because it's not, it's not my preference, right? It's the, the, the whole wrong thing we do. It's not about my preference or about what I think is good or what I think is, is fantastic. It's about what a customer wants or what he wants to buy or what they think is fantastic. But we have some casts there, which are very interesting because they're, they're like, quote unquote, infinity casks where a lot of samples oh, yeah. are, are, are being, you know, you're being put into a cask. I would be interested to find out what's, what, what they turn out to be. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, that's more of a, an interest than, than that was, that's something I really like to have. It's just interesting. There is, there is a bit of Jamaica in me. So the older Jamaican cats are, are interesting for me. Mm. So if one of those is, 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 uh, is bottled, I, I'd like to try it to see what it's turned out to be. Cause sometimes. Yeah. You have lighter and you have heavier Jamaicans, and, and the heavier Jamaicans, they, uh, they they turn out, you know, after years and years of aging, they turn out very, very nicely. And, and I get surprised by the lighter ones as well. Like it's it's mm. just, there's such a such a wide range of, of, of flavors and tastes come out of Jamaican rums. 
That'll, yeah. That would be one of my preferences. If, if you know, that's a non switch announcement. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And, and you, you mentioned the idea of these infinity casks. Yeah. So, so is this essentially you just, when you have samples and you need somewhere to put them, you're just going to, you know, put them in a cask and yep. just let it, let it sit. Let it mingle. Yeah, let it mingle. <laughs> they, they actually they originally started, and, and this is a true story where, where Ben Cross said, you know, when I'm, when I'm going to be a very old man, at my wake, somebody is going to have to drink rum, right? Because I'm a rum person, so at my wake, people will be drinking rum. And so I said, what are we going to do with all these things, all these samples? You're going to drink it at my funeral. Mm-hmm. And so he started off doing, doing that, just, you know, putting old samples in a cask and, and it was the wake cask or something like that, but <laughs> but in the meantime, you know, for over so many years, you have uh, you have several of them, and uh, they they yeah, we don't actually taste them, but uh, I'm, I'm sure the the Ians have have sampled them every now and then, and they they sort of walk around smiling and said, yeah yeah, it's interesting. Uh-huh. You get you get murmurs like that. Very interesting. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> could you could. I, you know, I, I was just kind of, this just popped into my head and it may be something that you would never consider, but ha- have you ever thought about on, on a small scale doing your own bottlings, like a main rum branded release uh, of, of something like that, like a unique, you know, single cast blend or something that's really tied to the story of main rum? Have you ever considered that? Oh, no, it's not under the main rum company name. Uh, uh, no, we've, we've, we've done a... A bottling together with Velia, as you, as you, as you might know. Yes. Where, where we compared uh, uh, origin age versus uh, European age. Right. Uh, that was, it was a Jamaican rum, right? Yeah, that was, that was a Jamaican rum. It's like a, a, a twin, which uh, which is separated at birth. And one one is mm-hmm. yeah. one is raised in Jamaica, and the other is raised in Europe. And, and yeah. you get you get you get different uh, nature different versus around. nurture. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was that was interesting, and and uh, we we branded that under Scare uh, as well. But yeah, as a main rum company, we don't feel that we should be uh, competing with our customers. Really. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Are the can I ask more about the Infinity Cask? Because I'm I'm fascinated. <laughs> John's by eyes eyes lit up when uh, when Infinity I mean, Cask uh, was. It uttered. just seems so cool and different, and you know I, I, we've explored a lot of rum, and to your point earlier, Karsten, it's a wide world of rum to explore, and we're no oh. uh, you know uh, you probably of most people I can think of have explored the most of it, but. It just seems like such a radical, different kind of idea that I hadn't ever kind of come up with in my head, at least before. And I'm assuming a lot of people hadn't. Well, mm-hmm. maybe they've done their own or anything. I don't know. But it seems like a really fantastic concept of like, you know, doing this over time and over the years. And whatever you end up is what you end up with. And it may not be like, yep. to your point of a, a, an example of a, a beautiful single estate, single origin rum or anything, but there's also, it's it's almost the exact opposite of the spectrum. So are those available for purchase? Is that a novelty that, you know, the Ian's just partake of, as you mentioned, or are there plans for those? No plans. Yet. There <laughs> was a long, a long pause, pause before the yet. Yet, <laughs> I like it. You gotta, gotta, gotta leave uh, some suspense for all the people out there. Yes. 
Well, uh, this this has been great. I know it's it's a, a dream of mine to to be able to to enter oh. those those offices uh, at some point in Amsterdam and and uh, meet everyone I'm be there. So close and yet so far. Well, yeah. in a month. <laughs> um, so so hopefully listeners have have gotten a, a better sense of of what goes on and and just how unique of a both parts of the company are between Shear and Main Rum and uh, what kind of an integral part of the world of rum they are. But before we go, is there anything else uh, we didn't get to? Anything to share? I, I mean, you just kind of, you had the big Infinity Barrel tease right there. I don't know if you have any other plans in the works right now that you may want people to know about. No, I think, I think Main Rum, you know, Main, main Rum is, is, is and will continue to have a great collection of, of rare and aged rum and cask. It's Every cask which comes out is is something special. Every cask which is bottled by somebody here is is you know is is a special project. Uh, it'll always be premium. It'll always be limited. It'll always be special. That's the fascinating part of the main rum company. I think it, it, it's uh, it's the rum industry, but it is also it's the antiques industry. It's it's really is a it's a different core of this role. Well, there you have it, Chief Rum yeah. Officer. Karsten Blierboom, thank thank you, two-time Rumcast veteran now. So thanks yes. again for taking the time to to come on and chat with us today. Thank you very much. Am I, am I the only one who's done it twice, or is there more of us? There's a few more. It's a very select group of yes. people, though. Richard Seal is one. Um, right. Maggie Campbell remember. just became another one. Mm-hmm. We just caught up with her. That episode. By the time this episode comes out, that episode will be released. Right. So right. we had we had to catch up with Maggie and find out what's happening at Mount Gay I now. Saw her in, uh, I saw her in Barbados the other day. So so what did she say is happening at Mount Gay? As you had the you know that little yet moment with the Infinity Barrel, there's a lot that she can't share yet. There's a lot of yet, but yeah. but yes. there's there's some very interesting stuff going feeling. on. Yeah, but um, <laughs> we we also she she brought on Jackie Brooms, who is the agricultural manager there. So we got to learn a lot yeah, about the whole all the agriculture that's happening there. Which I mean, there's so much going on for, between sugarcane and a lot more than just sugarcane, which I'm I'm sure you may have gotten to see there. Yeah, fascinating conversation. But a select group of two time Rumcast guests. Oh, and technically Eric K is another one. So oh, one of right. your customers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Eric has been on yeah. twice, but it's, it's a slight. Uh, Maggie, Maggie's fun, right? So I was, uh, I was there literally a few weeks ago, and and she showed me showed me around. It was so so great to you know to see the transition she's made from uh, where she where, where she was to Bangui now, and and how she seems to be completely in in her sphere. It's really is nice. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool to see. Um, where, was that just kind of a, a routine trip? Was that a business trip, or was that you know just just to get away for a little while? No, no, no. We had, no. I don't go to Barbados for for pleasure. <laughs> I, I go for business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thanks again, Karsten, for uh, taking the time. And yeah, hopefully our paths will cross uh, in person one of these days. Okay, so that was our interview with Karsten Vlierboom of Main Run Company and EA Shear. And it was such a fascinating conversation with him. And thanks so much to Karsten for giving us all that information and for his time. If you like these type of conversations and you want to hear more, or maybe there was a question that maybe we didn't get to that you wish we would have asked Karsten, hit us up. Let us know on social media or wherever you can contact us, host at rumcast.com. If email is your preferred way to do it, that's H O. 
O-S-T at rumcast.com. And Will, uh, we are on social media platforms everywhere, including YouTube now. I know you've been heavy right. into the YouTube uh, arena. Also, don't forget, you can support the show now. That's right. That's patreon.com slash the rumcast, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the rumcast. You can support the show. You can get invites to our little Zoom happy hours. Shindigs. You'll, mm-hmm. you'll, yeah, shindigs. <laughs> and uh, you'll, you'll get access to some more stuff uh, coming very soon that we'll be announcing in, in the coming weeks. So check that out. Let us know what you want to hear from us. Just say hello. We always love to hear from listeners. Yeah, and of course, thank you so much as always for listening. Thank you to you early adopters on Patreon as well. And we will see every one of you next time on the Rumcast. Rumcast.